Good day, Brigade. This is Bobby coming at you with a special midterm election episode update. Basically, what we're going to be talking about is midterms results so far, what's going to be happening there, and what we can start to extrapolate from all this. It's going to be kind of a numbers kind of episode, so it's also going to be very dated given the nature of the episode. So, you know, take that as you will. But before we get started into all of this, let's get a fact here. Did you know that in 2002, a study found that the prevalence of blue eye color among the white population in the United States is about 33.8% for those born from 1936 through 1951, compared with 57.4% of those born from 1899 through 1905. In other words, the percentage of people with blue eyes in the United States, at least among the white population, is actually decreasing. Which isn't too much of a surprise. The blue eye color trait is actually not that common. Anyways, let's get on with the show. Alright, so we've decided to make the music a little more upbeat, especially since the topic is going to be pretty numbers heavy and numbers can be pretty boring if you really don't know what to look for and all that or it's just not your thing so let's hope this keeps you up anyways we're going to get started with governor races around the united states let's keep in mind that not every governor's a governor was up for election however most of them were so for states that weren't up for election there's new jersey delaware West Virginia, Virginia, North Carolina, Kentucky, Indiana, Mississippi, Louisiana, Missouri, North Dakota, Montana, Utah, and Washington. As of current, it stands that 24 governors have been elected to, on the Republican side to being governors. This number also does include those who are already governor and are not up for election as well. Keep that in mind, as there are 50 state governors. On the Democrat side, we've got currently 22. As of current, most races are decided. There are four that currently are not called for. This is from the source of the Associated Press. However, we have verified it with multiple other sources, and this is more or less where it stands. As of current, the four states that don't have a governor decided quite yet are Arizona, Nevada, Oregon, and Alaska. So, let's get started with Alaska. To start off, Alaska uses a ranked choice voting system. So this means that parties can run multiple candidates and people vote by ranking their preferred choices. Usually this will often mean that they're probably gonna pick their preferred party first in any independence or things like that. This does give a better chance for third parties to go to, but in the United States, there's a very heavy two-party mentality, so it's probably not going to bear a lot of fruit at first. Anywho, let's get on into it. In first place, and likely to win, especially with the percentage of the vote, with 75% reporting, so this race is not done yet and it could still change, is Mike Dunleavy of the Republican Party with 52.1% of the vote, with 111,761 votes total. 
Then there's Les Gara of the Democratic Party with 23.1% of the vote and 49,535 votes. And then here's where the ranked choice makes things a little bit interesting. You have Bill Walker, who is running on a nonpartisan ticket, who has 20.1% of the vote with 43,142 votes total, putting him not too far behind the second place with the Democrat. And below him is another Republican, Charlie Pierce, with 4.6% of the vote, 9,771 votes, likely due to the fact that Mike Dunleavy is probably the preferred choice of the party and probably the endorsed candidate by you-know-who. But it shows an interesting thing with Alaska because as they have ranked choice voting, it has given a third party, or in this case, a nonpartisan individual, a very real opportunity of staying competitive within the race. So much so that they've actually garnered 20% of the vote. It's impressive, really, and part of the reason why a ranked choice voting system is great. At least a good start for the United States. Moving on to our second race, it looks like Oregon has actually just been called. Keep in mind, we are doing this right now at 6.02 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Looks like Ron Wyden has just been declared with 55.4% of the vote, 837,653 votes, 69% reportings against Joe Ray Perkins of the Republican Party with 41.8% of the vote, 631,890 votes total. And, well, if you'd like to know the next two closest, Chris Henry of the Progressive Party, holy crap, they're still around somewhere, with 1.7% of the vote and 26,787 votes, and Dan Pulju of the Pacific Green Party. A lot of interesting history on that one, I bet with 1.1% of the vote and 16,768 votes. So Oregon has just called it for the Democrat. That turns a solid blue Pacific if you don't count Alaska. So the next race going on, which hasn't been called yet, 77% reporting, still not called race yet, and for very good reason, you're about to find out, it's very close. So far leading is Adam Luxalt with 49.9% of the vote and 418,461 votes. Fun fact, Adam Luxalt is largely seen as the successor candidate to the previous Republican governor of Nevada. So it's not super surprising that he has that little bit of an edge. Following close behind him, and this has been a very closely watched race around the country, is Catherine Cortez Masto, Mastow, I'm sorry I probably mispronounced that, of the Democratic Party with 47.2% of the vote, or 395,866 votes total. So, yeah, it's pretty close. With 77% reporting, it's still understandable why they haven't called it yet. If you're curious, third place is none of these candidates. Yes, in Nevada, you can vote for nobody. That is an option. With 1.1% of the vote and 9,645 votes total. Good on you, Nevada. You have that right and you should choose it. Behind that is Barry Lindman of 
no party preference, so another nonpartisan, with 0.7% of the vote, 6,085 votes total. And behind him, Neil Scott of the Libertarian Party, with 0.6% of the vote and 4,788 votes. Kind of surprised nobody is in third place. Quite literally, nobody. (laughs) Oh, sorry, that was the Nevada Senate race. I got mixed up. My apologies. Also, that was the Oregon race that was just called for in the Senate. My apologies again. The Oregon governor race, let's go back to that while I don't mess up again, hopefully. We have Tina Kotek of the Democratic Party with 46.8% of the vote, or 734,011 votes total. Kristen Drazan of the Republican Party in second place with 43.8% of the vote, or 687,709 votes. Betsy Johnson of no party affiliation with 8.7% of the vote, or 136,440 votes. Denise Smith of the Constitution Party, 0.4% of the vote, or 6,249 votes total. And Leon Noble of the Libertarian Party with 0.3% of the vote, or 5,201 votes. So, for those of you who may not be familiar, the Constitution Party is actually the fifth largest national party in the United States. They are recognized, last I knew, in 28 states. That may have changed and they may have gained more. They have state affiliations in most, if not all, states. And what they favor heavily is a very right-wing, but more traditionalist along the American system advocated by Henry Clay, which called for high tariffs and, well, increased industry and production of the United States, and kind of pushing towards a sort of meritocratic system, not meritocratic, but... What's it called? Mercantile. There we go. Mercantilist policy. The difference being that the Constitution Party also wants to completely abolish taxes. They also tend to be much more favored by white people, especially with their more traditional views, shall we say. They have been criticized as being a potentially racist party, and In the state of Colorado, they actually were briefly recognized as a major political party in 2012 because a Republican candidate who lost his primary election, um, their party, Tom Tancredo, actually went and ran on the Constitution Party ticket and gained over 20% of the vote. He split the Republican Party ticket, which actually led to the election of John Hickenlooper, and yeah. Or I believe Michael Bennett. I'd have to relook that up. Actually, we're going to be rechecking that in a minute here. Let's get back to the rest of the Senate races while we can. Or governor races. My apologies. I keep getting myself mentally mixed up. Wonder why I'm messing up then. In Nevada for the Senate, we have 77% reporting. The race has not been called yet. We have John Lombardo of the Republican Party leading with 50.6% of the vote, 423,547 votes. Steve Sisolak of the Democratic Party with 45.8% of the vote and 383,835 votes. None of these candidates running in for a second third place in Nevada with 1.4% or 11,582 votes. 
Brandon Davis is in fourth with 1.3% or 10,850 votes. He is of the Libertarian Party. And Ed Bridges of the Independent American Party. That's a new one to me. Is in fifth with 0.9% of the vote or 7,838 votes. So that's how that Nevada's looking so far. In Alaska, we got Katie Hobbs with 50.2% or 920,717 votes. And Kari Lake is trailing behind with 49.8% or 912,649 votes. Arizona is not running any third party candidates. It is a very one or the other kind of situation right now here. So, those are the four governor races as of right now that are still being contested. Ones that have finished are California, which means they have re-elected Gavin Newsom, Idaho, which is Brad Little, with 60.5% of the vote, total blowout. Wyoming is Mark Gordon with, do you really want to know? 78.7% of the vote. Yeah, remember when I said there's basically no Democratic Party in Wyoming? We did not lie about that. If you look at the map, it's actually pretty much solid red. Like, yeah, there was no chance if you're a Democrat in Wyoming. In Colorado, Jared Polis wins re-election against Heidi Ganahl, who bought into the whole litter box conspiracy, with 57.2% of the vote, breaking a million, 1,164,265 against Heidi Ganahl's 826,211. And Kevin Ruskuski of the Libertarian Party took third, with 1.1% of the vote, or 21,824. Danielle Nish... Ooh. Danielle Nishwanger of the American Constitution Party, an affiliate of the Constitution Party, took fourth with 0.9% or 17,390% of the vote. And Paul Fiorino of the Unity Party took 0.2% of the vote with 4,854 votes. In New Mexico... Michelle Lujan Grisham took 51.9% of the vote, 368,474 votes total, beating out both the Republican Mark Ronchetti with 45.6% of the vote, 323,925 votes, and Karen Badani of the Libertarian Party with 2.4% or 17,323 votes. Gary Johnson was actually the Libertarian governor of New Mexico for a little while, so the Libertarian Party does have a little bit of a foothold there. Anyways, after exploring a few others, let's see. Pennsylvania, we got Josh Shapiro, which was also a closely watched race, winning with 55.9% of the vote, 2,931,714 votes, against Douglas Mastriano, with 42.3% of the vote, or 2,217,847 votes. There's a lot of people who live in Pennsylvania. 
There's Matt Hackenberg of the Libertarian Party taking third with exactly 1% of the vote. Or 50,664. Christina DiGiulio of the Green Party, probably mispronounced that, I do apologize. With 0.5% of the vote, or 23,661. And Joseph Solowski of the Keystone Party of Pennsylvania. Ooh, that's an interesting one. Fun fact, Pennsylvania is known as the Keystone State and is also one of the largest oil producers of the United States. Or at least was historically. So, one more race for you. We'll take a look at Ohio because that was also another closely watched one. It was Mike DeWine winning at least at first. Oh no, this was a blowout. Jesus. Never mind. Mike DeWine took with 62% of the vote, geez. However, Wisconsin picked Tony Tony Evers of the Democratic Party with 51.2% of the vote, or 1,355,409 votes, against Tim Michaels of the Republican Party with 47.8%, or 1,266,128 votes. So, it's been a rather fascinating one, at least with governor's races anyway. Let's take a look over on the Senate. So in the Senate, there's three races undecided. Again, Alaska, Arizona, and Nevada are on the list. Oregon is the one that we got on the past block. If you remember right, Adam Luxalt is leading in Nevada. So let's take a look at Alaska. So Alaska, again, using ranked choice voting, has 75% voting, reporting. Kelly, I'm going to mispronounce this one. I am sorry again is Kelly Sishbaka, T-S-H-I-B-A-K-A, with 44.3% of the vote, or 94,120 votes. Behind her is the incumbent Republican candidate who currently holds the Senate seat, Lisa Murkowski, also, again, a Republican, with 42.8% of the vote, or 90,990. Then there's Patricia Chesborough, of the Democratic Party with 9.5% of the vote, or 20,245. Then you've got Buzz Kelly of the Republican Party. And man, that guy's got a beard. Would not be surprised if he's from the Bush. The Alaskan Bush. With 2.9% of the vote, or 6,228 votes. And fifth is the total number of write-ins with 0.5%, or 1,056 votes. Did not see that one coming. So, in Arizona, right now we've got Mark Kelly with the lead, 67% reporting, so this is going to be a long night in Arizona. Again? Oh boy. There's Mark Kelly of the Democratic Party with 51.3%, or 945,620 votes. There's Blake Masters of the Republican Party, and man, that guy's got a baby face. In second place, with 46.5% of the vote, or 850,662 votes. And third place, Mark Victor of the Libertarian Party, with 2.2%, or 39,626 votes. So, you might be wondering about Georgia. Well, Georgia's got a fun little rule in their elections that requires you to win a majority in order to win the office. 
If no one gets a majority in the first round, a runoff round occurs in which the top two candidates go head to head. In this case, the top two candidates were pretty obvious. In the, on the Democratic corner, you have Raphael Warnock, the incumbent candidate who beat, I believe, David Perdue, if I remember right, to take the seat. In the Republican corner, you have former football star and guy who can barely form a coherent sentence, Herschel Walker. Hand-selected by Trump, has some rather interesting quotes that we have featured on this show. And, uh, we're going to be totally honest, we're not entirely sure he's, he's there, mentally. So... With 98% reporting and the runoff taking place December 6th, we will do a special show for that one, by the way. Even though it is going to be in the off-season, we will do a special one on that. We've got Raphael Warnock, who took the first place with 49.4% of the vote, or 1,941,499 votes. And second, as we said, Herschel Walker of the Republican Party, with 48.5% of the vote, or 1,906,246 votes. And Chase Oliver, and this is where it's going to get really, really interesting. Chase Oliver of the Libertarian Party took 2.1% of the vote, or 81,179 votes. That's enough votes that could have determined the winner. And as we've seen, it's not uncommon for the Libertarian Party to at least pick up a percent or two. But you have to wonder if recent events didn't turn people off from wanting to vote for Herschel Walker, but they didn't want to necessarily not vote and have the percentage point and essentially go to Raphael Warnock. Now here's why we say this, because it determines based on the majority number of votes cast, which means if you don't cast a vote, your vote doesn't get added to the total pool. So let's say about a percentage of these people didn't vote. Like, 1% did not vote instead of voting for Chase Oliver because they wanted to vote for Herschel Walker, or rather, they wanted to vote for the Republican Party, but found Herschel Walker a little off-putting, especially in light of many recent events, or maybe because they're like us and found his grammar to be absolutely atrocious, and his intelligence... Again, we don't believe that he's an idiot. We just believe that his brain has been scrambled pretty fucking hard, and it shows. But if that 1% didn't vote, it potentially could be enough to tilt the election in Raphael Warnock's favor. In other words, a, no, a not vote at all would equal a vote for the top candidate. And this is why the 50% rule is really interesting. Because instead of winning a plurality, you have to get the majority. Which means that if you don't vote, you're just giving your vote essentially to the top candidate because you're not voting. And the benefit goes to the goes to the one in the lead. So, say these people decide to hold off on voting in this case, in the runoff round. Well, in that case, those percentage points will likely convert into favorability for the leading candidate. And if it were Raphael Warnock in this case, which it appears so, at least on paper, then it's going to benefit him over Herschel Walker. And this is why Georgia's majority rule 
is kind of interesting and potentially dangerous because it means the candidate in the lead has an, out, has an interest in some regard deterring their opponent opponent's voters, sorry, from voting. I mean, obviously you have an incentive to do that anyways, but this can actually help translate in a compounding factor in which them not voting is additional votes to you rather than just they're not voting, so that's less votes for them. Because not only would it be less votes for them, but it would be more silent votes towards the one who's in the lead. And if you're in the lead, that incentivizes you to increase your turnout while decreasing their turnout. And you don't even have to necessarily increase your turnout. You just have to make sure your turnout stays higher. Which again, yes, that is technically what you want to do in this kind of idea anyway, regardless of the system, but individual voting methods can provide individual different strategies. And the majority rule kind of adds an interesting one, especially in Georgia. In interesting races that have been called, John Fetterman actually beat Mehmet Oz, or Dr. Oz as many of you may know him as, with 50.6% of the vote, 2,652,740 votes total, Oz getting 47% and 2,462,615 votes total. Now here's where it gets interesting. Supposedly, and this is what we've been hearing through the grapevine, so take this with a grain of salt, though in C we do have confirmed news source on this first bit, Mehmet Oz called Fetterman to formally concede, which Historically, that's perfectly normal. That's what you do. That's not really noteworthy. Normally. However, in an incredibly contentious situation like the United States is in right now, this is notable. This is a losing candidate who was endorsed by Trump, by the way. Though Trump now disavows his endorsement and blames Melania for it. Yeah, buddy. Blame your wife. That, 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 that's a real manly thing to do. Hiding behind mommy's skirt. Or rather, pushing mommy into the bus. But he called and conceded. And then he further call, went and called for unity in trying to work towards this great problem. And while we do not agree with Oz on a lot of things, ranging from a lot, some of his medical advice in pushing of supplements to his political views. But one thing we do agree with, and this is one thing we have to find admirable, is he chose to do the right thing. He took responsibility for the actions in the election, and he owned up to his loss, and he accepted it. That's just, that's just a start, but it's a good start to at least repairing things and putting things back together. And back into where we were going with these stories here. In 
New Hampshire, we have a winner, and this was also a well-watched race. We have Maggie Hassan winning of the Democratic Party with 53.4% of the vote, 332,180 votes total, to Donald Bullduck's Republican Party votes of 44.6% and 268,990 votes, and Jeremy Kaufman of the Libertarian Party picking up 2%. He also has a hella beard, by the way, with 11,795 votes. You might be wondering, man, Libertarian Party seems to be prevalent, yet at the same time, not really effective at winning elections. And the answer to that is yes and yes. See, the Libertarian Party was founded in 1970. So, they've been around for quite a while. They've been playing a long game, and they have a long strategy that they're working. And in the meantime, they've been trying to influence right-wing politics to a degree. In fact, if you're familiar with the think tank, the Cato Institute, that is a libertarian think tank supported by the Libertarian Party. Additionally, Pendulette and Teller are also noted libertarians who are members of the Cato Institute. The Libertarian Party is a fascinating history. And quite frankly, if I had to choose a right-wing party to be the main party in the United States, I would much prefer them over the Republican Party currently. Because they still allow for things like social freedoms and stuff, and they'd actually present a pretty interesting choice. I'll admit, I actually did vote for at least a couple Libertarian candidates, as well as Unity Party candidates. We'll talk about them later. In fact, we'll probably include them in the, fi in the season finale, because why not? So, getting back to the map here. Notable, yet not really heavily watched race, though kind of watched race. Michael Bennett of the Democratic Party in Colorado won with 54.5% of the vote, or 1,105,913 votes, against Trump critic Joe O'Day of the Republican Party with 42.8% of the vote, or 868,365 votes. Brian Piotr of the Libertarian Party winning with 1.6% or hitting third place with 1.6% or 32,496 votes. TJ Cole of the Unity Party hitting 0.6% or 12,440 votes. And Frank Atwood of the Approval Voting Party with half a percent or 9,195 votes. The Approval Voting Party, fun fact, is just a one-issue party that is aiming to push the idea of approval voting, which is more or less like consensus voting. So, yeah, you could say we're fans. If you're wondering what the total number of Senate seats sits at, it's 46 for the Democrats and 48 for the Republicans. There will not be a determined winner until December 6th because... Given the way trends are right now, assuming Republicans and Democrats want all the races they're very, that they're likely to win, the totals would come out to 47 seats for Democrats and 50 seats for Republicans. But you need 51 for the majority if you don't have the vice president on your party. So that's why Democrats have been able to work with the 50-50 split. Technically, they don't have the majority, but since they have the President Pro Tempore, or the President of the Senate, aka the Vice President, they have the ability to push their agenda and argue the majority because this Vice President does get a vote, but he only gets a vote in the event of a tie. 
which with the Senate is inevitable because every state gets two senators. Sounds like there might be some problems here, right? Some other races that were kind of interesting. Ron Johnson took his race in Wisconsin with 99% reporting. He has 50.5% of the vote, 1,334,680 votes, against Mandela Barnes of the Democratic Party, who had 49.5% of the vote and 1,307,283 votes. This race was tight. In Utah, you have the winner, Mike Lee, to be expected, of the Republican Party with 54.9% of the vote, or 415,026 votes. In second place, and this was actually kind of the guy the Democratic Party vote went for, since the Democratic Party didn't actually run a candidate in Utah. Fun fact. Utah has 61% reporting, by the way. Evan McMullen, who is an unaffiliated candidate, took second place with 41.6% of the vote, or 314,452 votes. Now you might be wondering, wait a minute, hasn't Utah run unaffiliated candidates in those who aren't really Democrats or Republicans trying to win major races before? And yes, they have. You might be wondering as to why. And that can actually be partly explained by the religion Mormonism. It's definitely not the only thing there, and there are definitely demographics of all types and varieties. In fact, Utah is a very budding tech sector, very similar to Silicon Valley. But... The Mormon ideal is still very prevalent, especially in places like Salt Lake City. So Mormons, though they tend to have very right-wing fiscal beliefs, also tend to be more along the socially free ideas, much like the libertarians. In fact, the original founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, ran for president once. He was assassinated in Nauvoo, but... He ran for president and ran on some really fascinating issues to the point where I'd have to debate whether or not seriously to vote for him. He wanted to basically abolish prisons, have people work, have a have an criminal justice system that favored rehabilitation rather than punishment. He wanted to push for all sorts of ideas advocated a free trade model, wanted to promote all sorts of interesting other ideas, and wanted to try to create a form of theocratic democracy, though this might be a little bit of a misnomer, though technically accurate. And you might be wondering, how the hell does that work? And it's like, okay, so you know how democracy is all about freedom and all that, and anyone can participate, and ideally, and all that shit? Well, Mormons believe this. And they would definitely allow it. But at the same time, they also believe it's their duty to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And in the case of Joseph Smith, he believed this should be established through basically creating a government that was more conducive to the kingdom of God, outlined, as outlined in the Book of Mormon. So... Is it theocratic? Yes. Is it democratic? Technically, but I'm trying to wrap my head around how that would practically work. So, you know. That's about the biggest thing that would turn me off from voting for him. Weirdly enough. 
Anywho. Let's see. One more notable race. Let's go to Florida. Well, Florida's kind of a blowout. The incumbent candidate, Marco Rubio, has been declared the winner with 99% reporting. If you're wondering how Florida's able to do this so quickly, Florida's got a bit of a history with voting irregularity, and they've, as a result, mastered the art of voter security and getting votes counted efficiently and effectively. See the election of 2000. For reasons as to why. So, Marco Rubio took 57.7% of the vote, or 4,469,878 votes. In second place was Val Demings of the Democratic Party, with 41.3% of the vote, or 3,197,133 votes. Third place was Dennis Misagoy of... Misagoy? Misagoy? It's spelled with a G, but I have no idea if it's supposed to be pronounced like a J. Anyways, sorry if I mispronounced it, I probably did, of the Libertarian Party, 0.4%, or 32,101 votes. Then there's Stephen Grant of no party affiliation, uh, with 0.4% of the vote, or 31,761. And then, in fifth place, probably the coolest name so far that we've had in the races, is Tuan Nguyen of no party affiliation, with 0.2% of the vote, or 17,338 votes. You go, Mr. Nguyen. So, let's move on to the House. So, to start off, we're going to qualify this with saying we are not going to go over every single goddamn House race, because there are 435 of them, and my god, we do not have that time. In fact, in terms of episodes, we are running way over our usual time, but we feel it's important to cover all this as much as we can, since that's kind of the point of this episode. So, with House results so far, 184 seats belong to the Democrats, and so far, 207 belong to the Republicans. 208 is needed for a majority, and so far, the Democrats have lost 8 seats, while the Republicans have gained 6. So, let's do a few states here. We're going to go to Colorado again. You might be wondering why we picked that so often. If you're not familiar with the show, we are actually based in Colorado, and that is why we are going with it often. It's the one we know most about, politically speaking. It's the one we sit in for politics in general, and it's where we vote. But we do like to try to cover other states as much as we can. So, in the state of Colorado... Out of the total seats up for grabs, we currently have eight. Of the first district, Deanna DeGette of the Democratic Party won 80, with 80% of the vote, 51% re reporting. Of the second district, Joe Neguse, sorry if I mispronounced that, of the Democratic Party with 69.2% of the vote, with 82% reporting. In the 3rd District of Colorado, which is notorious for having Lauren Bobart as their incumbent, with 98% reporting, this race is getting tighter than dick skin. Adam Frisch is currently leading the, with the Democratic Party with 50%. Now you might be wondering, how is this a lead? Well, it's because we can't go into fractions because of how small they would be. Because he has 155,000. 579 votes. 
to Lauren Bobart of the Republican Party's 155,506 votes. This race is tight coming down to the wire. In Colorado's 4th district, we have Ken Buck of the Republican Party with 60.5% of the vote, or 196,000 votes, and he has claimed the seat. In the Colorado 5th district, Doug Lamborn has claimed the seat with 56% of the vote, 80% vote reporting. In Colorado's 6th district, Jason Crow of the Democratic Party has won with 60.8% of the vote with 81% reporting. In Colorado's 7th district, where we are based exactly, our representative is Brittany Peterson, who has won her re-election with 56.9% of the vote and 96% reporting. And in Colorado 8th district, is also a race getting super tight. With 89% reporting, Yadira Caraveo of the Democratic Party, sorry if I mispronounced that, Caraveo, or is likely the pronunciation. If I am wrong, I again apologize. Of the Democratic Party is leading with 48.4% of the vote, or 97,115 votes. Barbara Kirkmeyer of the Republican Party is close behind, though, with 47.7% of the vote, or 95,626 votes. And Richard Ward is, of the Libertarian Party is comfortably third, with 3.9%, or 7,746% of the votes. Sorry for the breath in the mic there. Let's see. Let's take a look at a fun state. How about Alaska? Well, Alaska is a one-seat district, which is possible at, in the United States. In fact, a lot of Republican seats are of that because the rural areas tend to have fewer seats due to lower population and thus less representatives. We can get in the whole representative debates and stuff too with number of representatives and all that. That's a whole thing on its own. But in the Alaska at-large district, aka Alaska, we have Mary Peltola, remember, ranked choice, taking the lead with 75% reporting, 47.2% of the vote, or 101,236 votes, and while they technically can't claim it, she's got this in the bag. Her next closest is... Da-dun. Da-dun. Sarah Palin coming in with 26.6% of the vote or 57,005 votes total. Sorry, we got a little bit bored there. <laughs> but you know, Sarah Palin, the let's say fairy godmother of the Tea Party, because holy crap, she's insane, is in second of the Republican Party. Nick Bigich of the Republican Party is in third with 24.2% of the vote. Looks like the Republican Party vote has completely split due to Sarah Palin. And while she hasn't taken it yet, it is likely that Mary Peltola will take the seat of Alaska at large. Yeah. So that's where we're at with Alaska. <laughs> In Arizona, we got some interesting races, I'm sure. We've got Jevin Hodge leading for the Democratic Party in the 1st District of Arizona. 50.9% vote of the vote, 69% reporting. Arizona has 9 districts, by the way. 
In Arizona's 2nd District, Eli Crane of the Republican Party is leading with 53.7% of the vote, 87% reporting. In Arizona's 3rd District, Ruben Gallego of the Democratic Party has claimed victory with 76.1% of the vote, 69% reporting. In Arizona's 4th District, Greg Stanton of the Democratic Party is in the lead with 56.8% of the vote, 69% voting. Reporting. In Arizona's 5th District, Andy Biggs has claimed victory of the Republican Party with 55.8% of the vote, 71% voting. We'd like to note right now, while we are saying claimed victory, we're not saying that the candidate has claimed victory. We're rather using it as a figure of speech to say that victory has been declared for this person. We hope you understand this and that this is not going to be a bit confusing. We know we've mentioned this a bit late in the episode, and we do apologize for that. Juan Siscomani of the Arizona 6th District is leading with the Republican Party at 51.5% of the vote, 77% reporting. In Arizona 7th District, we got Raul Grijalva, sorry, I probably mispronounced that, of the Democratic Party, who has won with 62.8% of the vote, 75% reporting. And Arizona's 8th and 9th Districts, we've got Debbie Lesko and Paul Goser just taking their seats they have no opposition so you know they get to take their seats for free in Nevada we have four districts due to the population in Nevada's first district we've got Dina Titus of the Democratic Party leading with 50.3% of the vote 80% reporting in Nevada's second district Mark and Modi is claimed victory or taken victory with 63.5% of the vote, 71% reporting. In Nevada's 3rd District, Susie Lee of the Democratic Party with 50.4% of the vote, 80% reporting. And in Nevada's 4th District, Stephen Horsford of the Democratic Party winning with 51.5% of the vote, 80% reporting. Let's see. One more. We're going to choose between Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Let us go Ohio, because we've chosen the other two and we faked out on Ohio, so let's go for real on Ohio. So, Ohio is done voting. They've already got all their district seats determined. Ohio gets four districts, 14 district seats, and here are their winners by district. In Ohio's first district, we've got Greg Landsman of the Democratic Party winning with 52.5% of the vote. Ohio's 2nd District, Brad Wenstrup of the Republican Party winning with 74.5% of the vote. All these have a 97% reporting, by the way. In Ohio's 3rd District, Joyce Beatty of the Democratic Party takes the seat with 70.2% of the vote. In Ohio's 4th District, this was actually an initially watched race, but then kind of just dropped because, kinda, because of gerrymandering. In Ohio's 4th District is Jim Jordan of the Republican Party keeping his seat as the incumbent with 69.3% of the vote. In Ohio's 5th District is Bob Latta of the Republican Party with 67% of the vote. In Ohio's 6th, Bill Johnson of the Republican Party taking 67.7%. In Ohio's 7th, Max Miller of the Republican Party with 55.4%. In Ohio's 8th, Warren Davidson with 64.9% of the vote. In Ohio's 9th, Marcy Kaptur of the Democratic Party with 56.5% of the vote. 
In Ohio's 10th, Mike Turner with the Republican Party with 62.2% of the vote. In Ohio's 11th, Chantel Brown of the Democratic Party with 77.6% of the vote. In Ohio's 12th, Tor- Troy Balderson with the Republican Party with 69.5% of the vote. In 13th district, we've got Amelia Sykes of the Democratic Party with 52.6% of the vote. And in Ohio's 14th, David Joyce of the Republican Party with 61.9% of the vote. 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. So, of the 14 seats, the Republicans claim 9, making Ohio lean towards the Republican Party a little bit. Which is kind of interesting, actually. So, to finish up here, we're going to go into a little bit of a what we've noticed through this particular midterm time around and what seems to be happening with the map trend overall. And one thing we'd like to note is Ohio seems to be getting redder along with the state of Iowa, believe it or not. Well, that's not too unbelievable. But fun fact, they did a vote for Obama. Twice. And in Colorado, you have a blue shift in which it seems to be getting bluer. Now, there could be a variety of reasons for these explanations. One, in Colorado in particular, we tend to have more of a moderate tendency overall, and 40% of our state is on the independent list for affiliation, which means we are unaffiliated. This was a last estimate from a few years ago, so this number is undoubtedly changed, by the way. But that's where it sat a few years ago. I don't know more, much about the demographics of Ohio, and it's been a long while since we've had to deal with the demographics of Iowa, but it seems to be that the shift is moving towards more of a right wing. But the question is, why right wing? And is it more of a social issue or more of an economic issue? And with Ohio, I think it's more of an economic issue, whereas Iowa, it's more on the social issue. And why we say that is because Ohio, economically speaking, is actually pretty predominant. They sit in the midst of the Rust Belt. They are one of the more heavy industrial states, at least historically. They sit pretty well situated on the Great Lakes for trade between the states and Canada. And... At least historically, the Great Lakes region has been pretty popular for things like labor unions and movements of labor in favoring growth of industry and such. Some of these ideals, such as the growth of domestic industry, being taken up by the Republican Party, at least in name. In the state of Iowa, we believe it's more of a social issue. We actually lived in Iowa for quite a while, and they are very heavily agrarian. This should not come as much of a surprise to anybody. In fact, Iowa has among the most evenly distributed populations in the United States. And the major cities aren't really that major. I mean, you may know of Des Moines, you probably know the city of Cedar Rapids through the movie Cedar Rapids, which was not filmed at all in Cedar Rapids. Cedar Rapids is very different. (laughs) You probably even know Davenport if you're familiar with baseball. That is actually where the Field of Dreams is located. You know what else is located there? A shit ton of corn. And a gas station and a couple things, but not a lot. But it seems to be more of a cultural shift, especially since they have more of the rural mentality, and thus they want to stick with their own in terms of defending the rural interests, which seems to be, yet again, another blank taken up by the Republican Party, at least in name. And this is why we often see the Middle America regions tending towards the red, because the rural and agrarian societies of these areas feel that they are being more favored by the Republican Party as opposed to the Democratic Party. 
And honestly, when it comes to the agriculture and such, this might be a point where the Democratic Party might want to reconsider looking at this. Uh, in terms of the Republican side, they might want to reconsider their path that they're taking down with the whole Trump philosophy, as initially, it was widely believed, at least towards the beginning of this election cycle, that the Republican Party was going to dominate. It was their race to lose. Like, they were going to take both houses quite easily and possibly knock out the Democratic Party heavily. But over time, they kept making very unpopular, very controversial decisions, peeling towards their more radical base and ignoring the more moderate ideas and beliefs of the people who got them there in the first place. And in this case, it's come to bite them back in the ass a little bit. So instead of having an absolute landslide, we have a Senate that won't be determined until December 6th, and while the Republicans seem to be leading and probably will take the majority in the House, it's incredibly likely that they're not going to get a huge majority, and thus while they may be able to get stuff through, it may be almost impossible to actually get any realistic legislation or change passed. However, Kevin McCarthy is almost undoubtedly going to be investigating Joe Biden for something. I'm guessing they're doing this mostly as a service to the MAGA base, which honestly, they really should reconsider this strategy. No, it probably won't be good for them in the long term, especially since they'll cause a fractions, fractal split, but they shouldn't be appealing to the radical, especially as of current, they have the advantage of Duverger's law, which would force a strategic voting interest. So, in conclusion, we can find that where someone had a huge advantage, they made a bunch of controversial decisions and completely fucked it up, and on the other hand, we have a group of people who have historically just gotten their asses kicked right now and have come back, realized they and need to realize they need to ground their ideals more with the people as a whole. And this is kind of one of the biggest problems with the two parties in the American Union is they don't really appeal to the ground common people. They just appeal to the people who are going to give them money and give them the power to get those votes. And with voter apathy having been at a historical time high before all this stuff, this is kind of the trend you would expect. And part of the reason why a two-party dominant system is probably not what's going to help us in the long term, and why voting reform and change needs to happen. I mean, we've even seen it in Alaska. Well, there's still major two parties. There are people who are actually starting to gain ground in these ranked choice states. You've seen that there was an unaffiliated who took second place in one of the Alaskan elections, in the governor election, I believe. If we go back. You can rewind if you wish. But the point is, until real change starts to occur, and until we actually start to make those changes and people start to push and advocate for those, things are only going to get worse. And it's only going to get more and more on this even split. As we hit this equilibrium of, we believe in these things, you believe in those things, and these differences are irreconcilable. That's kind of scary. Anyways, if you made it this long, thank you. This is by far our longest episode and almost an hour long. Holy Jesus. <sighs> if you like this, share it. If you didn't like it, please share it anyway. It's going to get a bit dated pretty quickly, so, you know, keep that in mind. All of our stuff started around about 6 o'clock when we started reporting on all of this. A lot of these are marginal changes that have occurred still. Most of these things that we've mentioned are at least still true as of this time, 6.52 p.m. And anyways, thanks. Have a great night. 
pleasant tomorrow, and those who wish not to be tread on should mind where they step.